Welcome to the public morality. A Ponzi scheme by definition, named for Charles Ponzi, is a form of fraud that lures investors and pays profits to earlier investors with funds from the more recent investors. No one to date has come close to Bernie Madoff when his 2008 Ponzi scheme worth an estimated $64.8 billion was made public. Author Jim Campbell in his latest book, Madoff Talks, has written the most definitive book about the Madoff affair by speaking with most of the key players, including Bernie Madoff himself. Madoff Talks is being made into a Netflix documentary made off the monster of Wall Street. We are honored to have Jim Campbell on the Public Morality. Jim Campbell, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you, Byron. Thanks for having me. Good to talk to your folks in North Carolina, and it's my honor to be here. Anything named Public Morality, I like. <laughs> well, then we should get along great, sir. Um, I want to begin, based on your work in Madoff Talks, would it be fair to say that the story of Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme uh, is one that many of us are aware of, at least on the surface. But on the other side, it's a story that many of us know very little about. How would you respond to that? You know, um, that's why I put untold story uh, behind the most notorious Ponzi scheme in history from McGraw-Hill in the title, a subtitle, because that's exactly the truth. Um, you know, and I've had speaking engagements. Uh, I remember one guy came up and said, I know this whole story. And I said, okay, listen to what I say. And if you haven't learned anything, I'll give you a book for free. And right afterwards, he bought a book. Um, so the untold story is really uh, the real story here. The book has 400 pages of communications with Bernie. And people think that that's where all the sex is. Um, and of course, it is interesting. But it's the untold story of how the system failed, how the SEC failed, SIPC, FINRA, Wall Street, and that Bernie didn't really act alone. He was enabled by folks, all of which we can talk about uh, if you'd like. So you're exactly right. Um, what led you to the Badoff story? I mean, how did you, and also how, and to that end, how did you get this incredible access? Yes. Um, there were three kind of fortuitous uh, events. The first thing I was doing an interview on my radio show with a woman named Lori Sandell, who'd written a book that Andrew had somewhat cooperated on and that they'd forced Ruth to cooperate on and she didn't like the book. But anyway, out of the blue, she says to me, would you like to interview Andy uh, Madoff as prep uh, off the record? And then we'll you know, do the show the next day. And so I jumped at it, I get Andrew on the phone. I started attacking him right away. And he kind of disarmed me. He seemed very honest. He answered uh, uh, what appeared to be truthfully. I started off with your father gave you $3 million to buy uh, a co-op a few months before this thing went down. And that was not your money, not his money. It was stolen money um, from customers. And he said, absolutely, I should give it back. So we ended the call with him saying, I'm going to listen to your show. It was live then. And if I like what I hear, I'm going to talk to you. And that led to coincidence number two, which was that um, uh, Ruth Madoff, Bernie's wife, Andrew's mother, happened to be moving by coincidence to Florida, to Greenwich, Connecticut, where I live. I live, And we got together. I took her to lunch uh, in Old Greenwich. And it was a cold December day. 
Uh, there was no one in the restaurant when we arrived, and she still kept her sunglasses on. Uh, she was worried about being noticed. Very strikingly attractive, nice woman. And we hit it off very well. She ate a chef's salad like she hadn't eaten at a meal in a three weeks. And then as we were leaving, though, I said, can I get a picture? And she stops and she goes, you're wired, aren't you? And she thought I'd set her up. And we cleared that up and she introduced me to Bernie, which was number three. And um, we had to get approval of the prison warden to communicate over the email system. He wrote me these long seven page single space by hand letters. And then it sort of morphed into email. Um, and, um, you know, that's how, that's how it happened. Now, in the creation of this text, you are charged to interview someone, in, in this case, I'm speaking specifically of Bernie Madoff, who built a business, or at least a part of a business, on mendacity. How could you trust what he was telling you had validity? Okay, um, good question. Um, the first part is, um, as part of our deal, if you will, I said, Bernie, this is your chance to talk to history, but I'm going to vet every single word you say. And he wrote in you know, my hand, Jim, I accept that. And um, um, and that's exactly uh, what I did. And a lot of mendacity uh, is, was resu is resulted. Let me say a little bit too, that Bernie ran a completely legitimate business at one time, a market maker, which meant doing trades for discount brokers like Schwab, treated the customers really well, broke the monopoly of the New York Stock Exchange, architected the NASDAQ, all the off exchanges, the regional exchanges, put them together on a computer screen, if you will, all of which was highly innovative and it was worth $3 billion in and of itself without any Ponzi scheme. He was incredibly proud of that. And I over and over and over how he did it, the legitimate side, um, those were important. That's part of the message that he wanted uh, to communicate. Well, and then that's why I said in part about Mendacity, because there were there were two businesses. Yes. And, and as, as I was reading the text, are the two businesses, in a sense, sort of a, a, a microcosm, if you will, of the two Bernie Madoffs? There's, there's yes. this. You, your, 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 your thoughts, sir. Go ahead. You know, um, it's a great way to put it, too, because normally what I get asked is what happened that he went bad? And um, which is what you'd expect just as a gambler loses money um, and makes the classic mistake of doubling down and we'll get it back and it never happens. And Bernie told me a story like that, complex story, um, to end up not being true. And the fact is, and the Netflix um, docu-series made off The Monster of Wall Street captures this well too, because Joe Berlinger, one of the top uh, true crime directors for Netflix, he's done Jeffrey uh, Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Whitey Bulger, Ted Bundy, mainly serial killers um, until he got to Epstein and Madoff. And um, one of the things he wanted to do was recreate that mindset. And he rebuilt the 19th floor and the 17th floor. These were in the Lipstick Building in Midtown Manhattan. The 19th floor was the legitimate business called The Market Maker. And it looked like a Hollywood set. Um, everything had to be in order. Everything was black and silver. Computer screens had to be lined up. He was very OCD. Then you went down to the 17th floor behind lock and key. His own sons didn't have access to it. And it was 1980s computer equipment. Um, high school graduates, not the top level on the 19th, um, who really were unsophisticated when they first came on. 
the place was a mess. There were papers everywhere. They didn't even use email down there. And it was really the both sides of his brain because what he did was build at the same time over the same 40 years, a legitimate business, one of the most ethical on Wall Street. And then of course the biggest criminal enterprise uh, in the history of Wall Street uh, at the same time, over the same period, out of the same brain, same mind. You know, another one of my sort of takeaways that I, as I was preparing for this conversation, Jim, was someone like that who has, as my words, built a business, an illegitimate business on mendacity. They've got to be good at it. So I'm wondering how easy was it to believe Bernie Madoff? And did you ever have moments where you forgot that this was one of the great liars in criminal history? Well, um, I guess you could say yes, in the sense that uh, he's low-key charismatic and brilliant and had total recall. And when I remember when I started off, I hadn't done any vetting. And he was basic message was, yeah, there was a Ponzi scheme. I'm bad. I did all these things, but I had a great legitimate business. And here's how I'm being abused by the bankruptcy trustee um, who was charged with getting money back with the Department of Justice. And those things, in other words, basically other issues, and um, some of which the I would back in terms of the SIPC, SIPC, and the SEC failures and everything. Um, and so I had to go vet, and then a lot of that ended up being... Um, ended up being lies as well. I used to call him, I said, Bernie, the reason you're such a good con man is because you're the anti-con man. Because he sat like the Wizard of Oz, hidden behind the scenes, and all this money eventually came to him, initially because he was so trusted in the Jewish community. In fact, 85% of the crime was uh, Jewish people and Jewish uh, charitable institutions. And it just got passed right through. This guy's the Jewish T-bill. His nickname is safe and secure as the full faith obligation of the U.S. Treasuries. And some of them, we don't know how he does it, but he's our guy. He's totally trustworthy. Others, it doesn't smell kosher, but what the heck, I'm going to look a different, uh, in a different direction. And um, so he was highly effective at sucking money in, getting tremendous trust, without appearing to go out and get it or, or being a con man. We all know uh, brazen con men. He was just as effective, but it was like, I don't need your money. I don't want your money. You know, don't come into my fund. <clears throat> and at the same time, there were 20 banks in um, England, I mean, sorry, in Europe that were solicited. 14 sent money to Bernie and each one of them thought they had the exclusive relationship. Same with the feeder funds on Wall Street. A lot of them felt they had exclusive access. And as you may know, I mean, you read the book, feeder funds, hedge funds, their only job is to say, this is your money. This is your risk profile. You're a conservative investor, let's say. I, I need to look among hedge fund managers and match you up with the right guy. And I know he's legitimate. I know this is investment strategy, and I know this is his performance, and I should diversify you. Well, Bernie took, and for that, they get 1% of assets um, to administrate that and to do that due diligence. Bernie, as a hedge fund manager, gets 2% of assets and 20% of all the gains, a ton of money. What he did was he took all of that money and passed it back to the feeder funds, which is just basically a huge bribe. In return, 
they weren't allowed to do their job. They couldn't ask any questions. The longevity of Madoff's crimes, um, which you uh, addressed early on in the book, was due to a series of enablers yes. in varying degrees. Talk about those enablers, big and small, if you would. Yeah, okay, thank you. By the way, you read the book very closely. Um, these are great questions. Um, this is a fundamental point too, because Bernie tried to sell at the end that he did this all by himself. Um, he was protecting his lieutenants. Um, and um, I broke it into four groups of enablers. The first I call the co-conspirators, which was four big investors who he called his big four. The biggest of whom, Jeffrey Pickhower, took $7 billion out of the fund. Bernie only, in quotes, stole 800 that he put into the back door of the market maker when, when the overall business um, needed uh, to be held up. These guys periodically injected cash when he was having some kind of a cash crunch. And in return, they came to have power to extort returns from him. And you know, in a Ponzi scheme, there's no real investment activity going on. Returns from one individual's investor's money go to pay others. So you always need more people coming in the front door than leaving the back door. What Madoff was essentially doing was he had a lot of investors who were with him over 40 years that were not wealthy. They were just putting money in. People thought these were all rich people that lost money. He was taking their uh, money and using it to give exorbitant returns to these big four, 30, 40, 50% and up in what I call the reverse Robin Hood, taking from less wealthy and giving to wealthy. Second group was the willfully blind. And I just talked about them. They're the hedge fund guys who shuttled all this money to him in return for getting those fees. Uh, the third group, the unwitting co-conspirators, I named them, and that's the SEC as an example. They did five separate investigations, not only never uncovered a Ponzi scheme, never found the 17th floor even, but kept reinvestigating him for what they'd cleared him on, um, which they thought was front running, which is a market maker, is when you have an order, say, for 500 IBM shares. Uh, they know that's going to drive the price up slightly. It's bullish. Jump right in front, buy some IBM shares, and, and then the guys behind will come in and will uptick the price. And that was pe how people thought Bernie was always making money because it was always going up because he was front running. He never front was never front running. He never did anything illegal in trading on that floor. And then we know he wasn't trading to begin with. And then the final group, which I call the witless co-conspirators, I also mentioned this was the small group of folks on the 17th floor led by a guy named Frank DePascali, um, who his own um, lawyer called the chief fraud perpetuating officer and Sammy the Bull Gravano of Madoff. And he operationalized the whole thing. Um, all the fake computer reports, the faking out of the SEC, the sending out of fake statements every month. And all those guys, um, never figured out they were actually enabling a Ponzi scheme. They thought they were executing trades that were going on in Europe. And that's why they were all having to do these hand trades uh, entered. And another example of Madoff's brain here, on that 19th floor, he had a, an administrative assistant named Eleanor Squillary, one of the heroes of the book and one of the, in the Netflix documentary. And um, she was paid 125,000 a year, no, no fake IRA or pension. And, completely honest. 
down below, <coughs> Madoff had a right-hand uh, administrative assistant in the same type of role um, named Annette Bongiorno. And unsophisticated and coming from nowhere, just like Eleanor, her final year with Bernie, she was making 676000 bucks with a $58 million fake IRA. It always, you talk about public morality, it always haunted Eleanor. They were there together at the same time they were friends. What made her go one path and Annette go the other? Well, I'm going to go back to the, I believe it was the third group, the SEC group. And wasn't there a moment when, in one of the investigations of, of Madoff where he actually gave them information that had they checked, they could have uncovered more, but they never bothered to check it. Did I get that right? Uh, yes. In fact, there's there's several instances of that. But the big one is um, it's a Friday evening, and Bernie describes this to me. The SEC is doing an examination, and there's something called the Depository Trust Corporation that is um, acts as a settlement agent on Wall Street to make sure the money and the shares are there. Bernie tells him his account is 0646, 646, and if you go there, you'll see that every single market-making trade can be traced, and that's absolutely true. And then he said, go to that account, and there's a sub-account for the investment advisory business, which was the Ponzi scheme, and you will see this exact same thing, every trade. Well, Bernie says he expected to be in handcuffs by the weekend because not only did that sub-account did not exist, it never existed and there was never a single investment advisory trade ever to go through there. The SEC also was given all, um, all of Bernie's customers, many of which, particularly in Europe, were fake. Um, and they were to draft letters and get all this information and they would draft the letters and never send them out. They never made the phone call in the example I just gave you. I'll give you two others, JP Morgan, um, was the bank, the only entity that had a view into Madoff's finances. And that was through the 703 checking account. And if you're running an equity fund, that means you, there should be payments and deposits to counterparties because you have to trade and dividends should be deposited. Um, in, in this case, 4.4 billion should have been deposited. And there was never one single payment to a counterparty and never one single dollar of a dividend payment deposited. And in fact, $170 billion went, flew, uh, went through that account over the years in what Bernie told them was an operating expense account like for rent and stuff. So that's, and the other thing was the, um, the uh, whistleblowers, they, <clears throat> they uncovered within two hours that the results were not achievable as Bernie represented. It, it seems to me that part of, and you sort of touched on this earlier, so I want to come back to it if you don't mind, but part of Madoff's charm was built on the perception, using my words, of an inverted order. When most funds were selling, you know, potential returns, which I think you define as a greed motive, Madoff was selling consistently, which is a fear motive. And he also built an aura where there was no guarantee that he was even going to take your money which made him even more 
desirable. Say more about that. You talked about that earlier, but I think that's really, I found it to be a really, really important aspect to yeah. you know, his ability to pull this off. Go ahead. It's another good point because he built this uh, fund up during the 90s, early 2000s, when, as you recall, the market was going crazy and hedge funds were doing 20%, 30%. And he was under that overall. Um, he was paying these big four guys huge amounts of money. But at the end, in particular, he was around 11%. And um, it was exactly that. Consistent. And he allowed people to take money out whenever they wanted to. A lot of these funds put gates on them and block them, say, for five years. So a lot of people used it as a checking account um, and uh, put their savings in there. And then when they retired, lived off of it. And it was marketed as very conservative and that he had it's called a split strike conversion but not to get complex but he used options on either side of it to in what what he represented to 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 keep the returns in a narrow margin so that the risk on the downside was not there um and um in fact that was one of the huge red flags because that strategy should have largely mirrored the stock market um and as you know the stock market cannot go up and in fact, it should have looked like the market at about 95% correlation, which just means mirror. And the correlation was uh, Harry Markopoulos, the whistleblower in two hours, found out the real correlation was 5% because it always went up. And then the official forensic investigators found it was actually 2%. <laughs> um, I, I guess this sort of alludes back to the enablers um, in various degrees, but how much did Madoff sort of overall panache contribute to the longevity of the scheme in terms of specifically like Bernie's reputation on the street, though, he, he could just be this good, so to speak. Yeah. Um, he was chairman of the NASDAQ uh, after having architected it with his brother to, to, to a great extent. And first off, obviously, FINRA, which is the body that oversees the street, um, came out of NASDAQ. So obviously there was sort of in bed relationship um, and they would put their junior examiners on, on his case, um, including they put all their orientation, uh, new hires would go to his um, firm. As I told you, it looked like a Hollywood set. So he was pretty much uh, in bed with them. He was on all kinds of committees. So um, this is under the regulatory capture um, issue. And in fact, you know, he was so well regarded that the regulators would call him and they would say like, we don't know exactly what Goldman Sachs or Merrill Lynch or someone is actually doing here. Can you explain it to us? And he would then, you know, he would then tell them. And, you know, th there were times um, in the crash of 87 when market makers, you know, part of their, their job is responsibility for keeping markets when they're tanking, meaning you may have to take losses on the other side of positions during that time. Well, what happened? A lot of market makers on Wall Street stopped answering their phones and they were unavailable to do trades. And um, Bernie, the whole time, did trades, lost 20 million bucks on that day in his firm, but he kept answering the phone. And there was a market manipulation price rigging by market makers also in that time frame. And he was also innocent of that. He helped um, he helped them figure it out. So, um, you know, you have that kind of trust. And then remember, I called it the front of the restaurant, the 19th floor with his two sons ran. It looked like this nice, clean restaurant and all the, the bad gambling, as you will, the mafia stuff was going on in the back of the restaurant, in this case, downstairs. And yet, 
I mean, Madoff was able to sustain this fraudulent empire, uh, you know, even while there was there were some red flags as you talk about it. There were, as you, I mean, hindsight is always uh, twenty twenty. But as you point out in the text, there were red flags along the way, and so it to someone like myself, it seems like, well, how could no one see this? And and and, and there were people who had questions about Madoff at the time, right? Yeah, you know, this is, you know, where the SEC, you know, fundamentally fails in its mission. Number one, it's not a cop, which is what they advertise. It comes in afterwards and clean the messes. But also take individual investors. I mean, I heard victims tell me this. Well, the SEC examined him. They, they said he was clean. They did it five times. Why would I think that he should be a crook if the government is basically saying, um, you know, he's clean and giving him the good housekeeping seal of approval, which is, you know, one of my recommendations to individuals, which is take responsibility for your money. Don't don't assume the government is going to be there. Don't assume the government's going to bail them out because the government didn't bail them out. And, um, you know, it was part of the part of the issue that Bernie was brilliant at exploiting. Let me give you an example of this. He was a market maker. He was totally honest, I told you. Well, the SEC had a silo. The people that investigated investment advisory, where the Ponzi scheme was, was a different set of examiners. And the SEC never had them on the premises because they're taught how to uncover these things. They only sent in the market makers. Within the SEC, they didn't talk to each other. Markopoulos turned uh, his 30 red flags into the Boston office. The Boston office didn't talk to the New York office, which is where Bernie was registered, literally did not talk. It was like the Yankees and, and the Red Sox, um, you know, completely dysfunctional and incompetent. You know, since you mentioned Yankees, Red Sox, baseball, <laughs> it, it almost seems so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dive into a baseball metaphor here. Uh, it almost seems as though Bernie was picture Bernie was a baseball player would have been the steroids era. And <laughs> and you know, you had a guy like you know Brady Anderson for the Baltimore Orioles hitting 50 home runs is like, no. And so it almost seemed like Bernie was like was like on steroids and everyone's looking like, how is this possible? You I know, mean, that's a, that's not only is that a great point, but Frank Casey, who is who worked with Harry Markopoulos made that same point to me. He says, like, you know, we have a guy who's hitting 960. What are the odds he can't be on um, on steroids? And by 960, he really meant like a 1,000 because Bernie never had any any down periods. And, you know, the show is called Public Morality. And, you know, I've interviewed Ron Darling, for instance, who was a Mets star mm -hmm. pitcher at World Series. And I told him, I said, Ron, I have not been able to get interested in baseball since the steroid era because of that. And he told me he actually understood. I've come around a little bit, but I've had a real trouble with that because it really, really bothers me. And then the same in the same case here is that, you know, Bernie was operating on too good to be true. And by the way, a lot of people knew that. And um, nobody did anything about it. Well, uh, Merrill Lynch and Goldman Sachs both forbade their people to do business with Bernie, but didn't bother to mention that to any regulators. Um, there was a, a passage in the book that um, was a short one, but I'm going to read back to you. And I'd like to have you just say more about it. because I thought it really just hit the central nervous system of the book, in my view. Huh. 
you wrote Madoff's path to Ponzi was short. Madoff's trip along the path, Ponzi path was long. Say more about that. I think that's a brilliant sentence. Yeah, you know, what I meant by that was Bernie maintained to me that he never um, started the Ponzi scheme before 1992. And that's when he told me this big story about this big loss he took that caused him to go into this business. And um, the thing is, that was driven at least in part by they can't they couldn't claw back money from the family before the Ponzi started in theory. So he would never budge off of that. But the fact is, all the evidence, you know, it came back. And when I looked at all this stuff that he likely, even in the early 70s, wasn't. So my point there was that this wasn't something that destroyed an honest man. This is a man that was doing this from the beginning. And by the way, we can talk about it, but it wasn't driven by greed. It was driven by his hubris and his pride. Okay. But the, the long path then refers to the regulatory failure, the fact that Wall Street allowed this to happen. In fact, they were enablers, as I told you. And then, of course, the regulatory system completely failed. And by the way, we can talk about this later if you want. Has history repeated itself? We just had right before the Netflix docuseries came out, FTX go down with the whole SBF thing, Samuel Bankman Freed. Perfect timing going into yet another scandal. Uh, you know, uh, you cite in the book that you you even cite some underpinnings that go back as far as perhaps what 1962 where Bernie lost money and yep. he made it good with, with the investors. And you sort of cite that incident as, as potentially the underpinnings for what would happen later. Say more about that if you would. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point because the interesting thing about that was he took the money of about 20 people, put it into the IPO market. It was highly risky. Remember, I told you market makers are supposed to maintain it. Well, he claims, in this case, the underwriters all ran and it sunk. And he got his father-in-law um, to bail him out 30,000 bucks, which was a fair amount of money back then. And he paid them back. So th the interesting thing was, well, that he didn't run a Ponzi scheme then, and he gave the money back, um, which is crazy because Merrill Lynch doesn't give you your money back when the market goes down. But here's the insight I took out of it. The way he described it to me, he was mortified. He couldn't deal with it. He'd lost people money. And he was the wizard. And he had to be perfect. And he had to deliver. And it showed me that in his mind, he could not deal with that. And if you look at the, the, the mind breakdown again, the legitimate business was made on commissions so that you're making money if the market's up or down you got to run it well you got to have good cost control good technology the other business though you're making bets in the market and that side he could not deal with and unfortunately he didn't have the moral courage and he used those words uh with me to say i can't be in this business i got to get out of this business and then of course he doubled down essentially it got too big and he and he couldn't get out of it but 1962, and you know what's interesting is that you you grasp that really well. I had a little bit of a challenge with the Netflix Netflix folks because they kept wanting to use 1962 as the Ponzi scheme and the beginning of it at a huge event. But to me, it was a huge psychological event, not a huge financial or Ponzi event. Uh, something else that you wrote, uh, hidden as well, not that in any way diminishes his culpability as the mastermind, 
is that Madoff himself was the victim of an extortion by his big four investors. Say more about that, because I thought that was also very telling. Yes. Um, I feel that strongly, um, because none of those guys went to jail, as you know, and none of the Wall Street hedge fund managers went to jail. And the big, see, the big four, particularly Pickhauer, had to be doing it for greed, because you take out $7 billion, and then you, at the same time, you send in fake losses so you don't have to pay taxes on it and it's just a humongous amount of money i've never met a before this a ponzi scheme where the mastermind doing it doesn't make all the money because that's how it usually goes and then he runs out runs out of town and as i said because money has to keep coming in is why they normally fail so quickly but these guys had so much money out of it uh, that they it's got itself so that it could be sustained but they were bad guys now it's not black and white. Norm Levy um, was one of those big four. Um, he was a big real estate investor. He's the only one that Bernie really liked. And he was like a father figure to Bernie. And I think Bernie totally manipulated him. I mean, when the poor guy died, Bernie was the executor of his non-real estate assets. Bernie stole $250 million to keep the Ponzi uh, scheme going. Um, Stanley Chase was the smallest of them and Bernie gave him a hedge fund. So he was doing the same thing, getting those fees as well as making those fake returns. At the same time, he said to Bernie, I don't know what you're doing. I don't want to understand it. I just want to make sure you don't lose me any money, um, which isn't exactly very responsible for a guy who is then running a, a hedge fund to, to other people. So in my mind, particularly Pickhauer, um, were bad guys. And, you know, Bernie, you don't give him any um, any leeway because he ran the thing. He was the mastermind. He set it up, but he wasn't doing it to put X, you know, to put money in his pocket like Pickhauer was. He didn't take, you know, seven billion. Um, and even the 800 million he took, it was just to keep the business floating. Now, now the big, all, all, all the big four deceased, big four investors? Yes. Is you know um the big Jim Pickhauer died one year after Bernie went down. He drowned in his pool, Palm Beach. Right. Uh, <clears throat> you mentioned in various ways throughout the book. You've also said uh, a couple times on on this broadcast that Bernie Madoff lacked the moral fiber to get out. Was there a way for him to ever get out uh, that would have resulted, that would not have resulted, I should say, in, in some sort of legal jeopardy? Uh, or did he just ride the train until he just ran out of steam and there was just no way to get off? Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's funny you, you bring that up, too, because Frank Pascali, who was the right-hand man, wanted to find a softer landing and couldn't figure out why Madoff, who was so brilliant, couldn't figure out a softer landing. By the way, in 2008, the market crashed 40%, right? So right off the bat, Bernie could say, I just lost 40%. So right off the bat, he's explained a big chunk of the gap, right? In fact, he actually made money, he reported in, the, in that time frame from September to December. I came to a conclusion and, I, and it, it came out of talking to a, a, a psychologist who specializes in, in Wall Street criminals. Um, and she said, you know, Bernie did have an exit strategy and his exit strategy was death. And you know what? That's exactly made sense to me because the boys um, fought 
to have the name changed to, you know, Madoff and Sons or Madoff family because they wanted it to, to, to show that they were going to run the firm and there was going to be longevity. And they didn't understand what Bernie was doing and it bothered them uh, if he got run over by a truck and Bernie would have nothing, wouldn't allow it, no partnership. And he just over and over told them, when I die, it's going to be unwound. And I think that's what he would have done. Now, remember something else, because I say this in the book, absent 2008, Bernie would still be in business likely today. Wow. The the uh, you, you know what the other one of the things that really shocked me um, and you touched on this also but really shocked me in reading the text um, was when I sort of imagined what was going on 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 the was it the nineteenth floor yeah uh, I'm thinking a, a plethora of Ivy League whiz kids with cutting edge technology and. You, you you say it was far far from that. Uh, well, remember when you say 19th floor, that's the legitimate business. I'm not sorry, 17th floor. I'm sorry, 17th yeah, floor. Oh yeah, no. And the seven, the 19th floor had just who you said. The 17th floor, no. These were high school graduates. He came in, and by the way, his mind was so psychologically manipulative. He may not even realize this, um, but Eleanor pointed out a lot of these women were, were abused in some way or another in their lives. So they were unsophisticated, didn't understand Wall Street, and they were uh, abuse potential candidates. Now, so that gets them in the door. What happens next? He pays them exorbitant amounts of money and keeps them in the dark. So you have someone who's a high school graduate who's got millions of dollars in a, in a, in a hedge fund account that they think they have with Bernie, they, where are they going to earn that money anywhere else? He bought them. He had three ways of doing this, I say. Number one, he did run the firm in 19-4 as a, as a family business. He paid for sudden medical expenses for honeymoons. He treated customers well. I know people that stayed there because they, he treated customers so well in the 19th. Okay. Number two, money, handcuffs, threw it at them. Number three, tremendous bullying, manipulative, manipulative um, capabilities. People would say all the time, well, why didn't the sons ask him? Why didn't they force their way into the 17th floor? Because he had a brilliant way and you had to understand and get inside his mind how to cut him off at their knees. Nobody questioned Bernie. And the, say, you watch how he dealt with the SEC examiners, same thing. He just had a way of bullying and cutting them down. So he had three different ways that he put together um, to keep the thing together. We've talked around it, and, and I don't want to blame the victim, if you would. Uh, that's not the gist of this question, but it, it does seem like there's a clearly unindicted co-conspirator named Greed, and that as long as I was getting the returns I wanted, I didn't ask questions like going back to baseball. If I'm if I'm the owner of the San Francisco Giants. I don't question Barry Bonds' uh, yeah. physical change. I don't question it. I don't question that he's putting up Ruthie and Ted Williams-like numbers. I'm getting results, so it is what it is. How much of that was also uh, part of yeah. the longevity of this scheme? Go ahead. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I look at that kind of in three slices, too. First off, there's guys 
Um, nobody knew it was a Ponzi scheme, but there's guys who know he's doing illegal stuff. The feeder funds knew they couldn't ask questions. They knew sometimes what he said he was doing wasn't showing up on their statements. And particularly Fairfield Greenwich, the biggest right here in Greenwich, who got um, 16 billion at the maximum uh, with uh, parked with Bernie. Um, there was another group kind of that said, hmm, what's going on? Is it front running? You know, kind of like he's our crook. We don't really know what he's doing, but we're kind of smiling and we're looking the other way. But they didn't have evidence or know or feel. And then there's the third group who um, I think really is uh, was victimized. And these were, you know, rather average net worth who trusted him over all these years. And, you know, I would say to them, and I never found anybody even in the legitimate trading business. Do you understand Bernie's split strike conversion strategy? No, I don't really understand that at all. By the way, it's simple. It's co it's conceptually simple, but I don't understand it. I said, well, okay, well, then did you go through your statements in detail? And, you know, Bernie would send these stacks of con co trade confirmations in chronological order in every statement. And I had victims say they would get somebody they knew, like their accountant or an expert, and they would literally lay them out on the floor and go through them all. And, you know, they would say, like, how did it look legitimate to me? And um, those guys, you know, you know, were victimized. And remember, I, I would say, well, were you greedy? Well, no, I was making he told I was making 11, 12 percent. My accountant was telling me I should be making more in the 90s. Um, so and then, of course, they were victimized by the S, the, by the SIPC. But um, to answer your your question directly, um, greed is an unindicted co-conspirator, willful blindness, by the way, I think should be a criminal offense. Um, and it's not. Um, in fact, there's no due diligence terms. Fairfield Greenwich had this beautiful um, brochure listing all their risk management. And these guys were at the top schools. And I mean, in Switzerland, in the U.S., degrees upon degrees. And um, it was all baloney. I mean, these guys existed, but they weren't doing their jobs. In fact, Madoff told them what to say. He scripted Fairfield Greenwich's chief risk manager. How would you feel about this statement? That whether it, we begin with, was it Clarence Ponzi, Charles Ponzi, who started the, the, the infamous Ponzi scheme, Bernie Madoff, there will always be space on the street for the Gordon Geckos of the world who openly profess that greed is good. How, how would you respond to that? Yeah, you know, um, I would say that, you know, the regulators fail and they still can't get ahead of stuff, but you can never regulate a criminal mind, really. You can just try to, um, you know, have the, the street and the uh, ethic and the leadership um, be try to be disciplined. But, you know, and, and Bernie was the opposite because he appeared so, you know, straight. Um, the Gordon Gecko types just continually do stuff, you know, the boiler room guys. Um, the, um, and, you know, even some of the supposed good populists like Robin Hood, for instance, Robin Hood rips off its clients in ways that Bernie didn't do. Um, and that bothers me. And their images were taken on Wall Street. We're the populace. And um, so, you know, I can blame the regulators, but I can't have them repeal human behavior, uh, which is always uh, going to be out there. One of the things that, uh, you know, I, I came out of the Midwest and I guess was kind of idealistic and, you know, assume, first of all, the government worked. But but secondly, that 
if you get someone like a Bernie or someone else and they get caught and they go to jail, I kind of expect them to come out and be reformed and like, I'm never going to let myself get in that again. And you see these people doing the same things over and over and over like serial killers do. And it's funny, Joe Berlinger, uh, who had obviously done documentaries on that, he asked me, I said, you know, was Bernie a serial killer and and everything? We And we ended up at the end um, coming, it's funny, we came in, in different ways, which is, you know, I'm saying, um, you know, trust but verify, um, make sure the regulators do their job um, on Wall Street. And he says, was, I'm not sure I would have ever have thought of trusting Wall Street, Jim, but we end up at the same place. Uh, in addition to, to, to Madoff, who else uh, was convicted in, in, in this scheme? I know Deep Pasquale was waiting sentencing, but who else was convicted in, in, in this scheme? Um, Frankie Pasquale um, pleaded, pleaded, turned government's evidence. It literally took him years to basically teach the government how everything was done. He ended up dying uh, right before his sentencing. So his convictions vacated for that reason. Um, some of the 17th floor people went to jail because the judge came to the conclusion that they actually did not know it was a Ponzi scheme. They got relatively light two and a half type year sentences. Peter Madoff, Bernie's brother, 10 year sentence, Bernie 150 uh, year sentence, and a guy named um, uh, Bonventry uh, who ran essentially was the chief financial officer operations officer he got 10 years as well the hedge fund guys who willfully blind none of them went to jail they had money clawed back um the big four none of them went to jail the auditing firms that didn't find anything nothing happened to them um the international money laundering scheme uh nobody went after that the tax fraud scheme this was a tax fraud scheme for the wealthy in the know like the big four as well. That was never prosecuted. Tax fraud is a criminal violation. So um, yeah, they didn't put anybody in jail either. How about the SEC? They did a tremendous uh, in inspector general report that was damning. They released it though on Friday night, 6.30 of Labor Day weekend. And in the SEC, the total punishments, four people were demoted. I suspect um, this will not be the last book written about Bernie Madoff. As far as you're concerned, is, is, is the matter closed as to what happened and will there just be some things we will just never know? How, how do you see that going forward? Well, I mean, I had a goal um, that I had to convince McGraw-Hill of, which was I wanted to show the overall architecture for the first time, which by that I mean the untold story, because no one had put together how the regulators failed, how Wall Street failed, the role of the big, most people didn't even, have never even heard of Jeffrey Pickhower, for instance. And then of course, the real story behind the Ponzi scheme, which was when did it start and how long did it really last? And the other thing that I wanted to do was the DOJ, the bankruptcy trustee, the media and people all thought Andrew, Mark and Ruth were involved somehow or knew about it. And I wanted to unveil all of that in one story. Now, if you say if somebody come, can come along and beat that in the future, um, okay. I don't think there's many stones unturned from this. I do think the money laundering aspect, um, particularly from abroad, uh, is a whole subject 
right to go after, um, which is bigger than Bernie um, and um, regulatory reform. But I, you know, I have 30 proposals in my book for reform. But um, yeah, you know, Diana Enriquez is in the docuseries. She wrote the book Wizard of Lies, the very first one. And um, she knew Bernie from uh, covering him from the New York Times. And she viewed him as his biographer. And, you know, when, when my book came out, I said, Diana, I don't view my book as competing against yours. Because when you wrote yours, the untold story wasn't known. How Bernie did it wasn't known. The whole 17th floor operational piece. And it wasn't known whether the family was involved and all of that. So I viewed mine as the second generation Diana. Now, is there a third generation? Maybe in, in money laundering or or, or something else. Um, there's not much left that you can figure out on Bernie, I don't think. Or I'm proven wrong on the family. Yeah, you, she had a different relationship with Madoff because he was actually on her Rolodex uh, yes, as, yes. as background and things of that nature as well. Yes. In fact, that's that's why she viewed herself as a biographer, because she was a big reporter, uh, financial business section of the Times. And yeah, she could get Bernie on the phone. And one of the reasons Bernie talked to her um, is he liked her and trusted her. And of course, she knew him as someone that was legitimate um, at the time. But her book is called The Wizard of Lies. So she changed her mind. Finally, how helpful was Ruth Madoff to your to your book? Yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good question, too. Um, the, Ruth gave me the inside to the family um, and, and the firm then trusted me. And I mean, people like Eleanor Scolari. And um, she, she's, she's, she sells herself as unsophisticated in finance and had no idea what he was doing. And overall, I believe that, but she's a little bit more sophisticated than, than she let on. And um, she was cult-like devoted to Bernie. By the time I came along, she'd done a pretty good job of breaking that cult-like. And she introduced me to Bernie. But in terms of my investigation and everything I uncovered, she wasn't, uh, you know, involved in that really. And it was more just on Bernie and on her. And we texted each other and we had lunch together and we went back and forth and she grew to trust me. But she really didn't. I mean, as I told you in the book, Revelation, I asked her what the first thing she said was when Bernie confessed that afternoon, December 10th, in his apartment in 2008. And she said her first question was, what's a Ponzi scheme? The book is Madoff Talks, which is uh, a Netflix documentary, Madoff, The Monster of Wall Street. Uh, our guest uh, has been Jim Campbell. Jim, I want to thank you so much, sir, for joining me today on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. Let me tell you, Byron, uh, you did a tremendous amount of research. And, uh, of course, it makes the interview a lot of fun. And uh, obviously, you, you run a good show, my man. So thank you. Thank you very much for taking the. And you know what's nice, too, to be honest, is that your focus was the book. And, you know, a lot of people, Netflix is what they're interested in. And Netflix reflects the book really well, which impressed me because they didn't Hollywood tabloid, is it? But I really appreciate that you, you spent the time doing that, sir. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Prime, and SoundCloud. Those listening to the Public Morality on WSNC can now listen on its app. 
Using your mobile device, simply go to your application page, search WSNC 90.5, and click Open to listen from anywhere. And once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WGAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the Pullman Corrality at their studios. The Pullman Corrality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Pullman Morality, I'm Byron Williams.